Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. My guest today is David Cohn. He's the co-founder of Subtext, a platform that lets news organizations, reporters, and content creators text with their audience to increase audience engagement. Over the past two decades, David has worked at the intersection of technology and journalism with a focus on new products, business models, audience growth, customer experience, and incubating new companies. In today's episode, we touch upon the recent buzz surrounding AI and focus on the opportunities that generative AI presents for audience engagement. Welcome to Newsroom Robots. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I really had a lot of fun last week on This Week in Digital Media on Subtext. And I really got to interact a lot because of the whole doomsday bust that was going about. And it was pretty timely to hear a lot from others in the news industry and talk to them about what they were thinking. So that is something that I want to really delve into straight away for today's episode, because last week, all of the big tech folks in OpenAI, Google's DeepMind, Microsoft, you've had Bill Gates, Jeffrey Hinton, everyone saying that, warning that advanced AI systems can really be as dangerous as like pandemics and nuclear weapons and really pose a risk of extension to humanity. And I want to just hear your thoughts, really, how much of a risk you see it as do we should we be afraid of AI regulate it or really just embrace it right so I mean that is a big question and one of the things that's interesting about right now is I feel like I can often argue both sides of of any question because it's just so murky I would say you know my first thought or inclination is that you know whenever there's a new technology there's a lot of you know over concern right I mean that's sort of like the classic story of technology, right? When when they invented writing, I think it's the famous saying is that there was a Greek 
philosopher who thought people were going to lose their memory and, you know, so on and so forth. And, and is this just a bunch of doomsdayism? I mean, to that argument, I would say this, like most generative AI still requires a push from a human, right? I don't think that, that it's sentient in a kind of, you know, Terminator 2 sense, right? It still requires a push from a human to give it direction. That said, once it's given direction, there's this concern of momentum, right? Like maybe you pushed it in a dangerous direction and it snowballs out from there. And, and a great example of this is, I think it was Google Bard was asked a question in, I want to say, a Pakistani language, which it had never been programmed in. It didn't know that language. But because its job was to answer the question, it went, it learned the language, and then it responded back in that language, which blew the developers of Bard away, right? They're like, because that's an emergent property, right? It learned a new language that it was not programmed in, and it taught itself, essentially. And it was still doing its job. It was just in the service of, of answering a question, which is all it was supposed to do. And it had given that initial push. It's just that it was pushed in a direction nobody had ever anticipated, just learning a new language. So again, do we have like a super intelligent AI that, you know, is out of our control? No, but it feels like maybe we're playing with a Petri dish and like we're starting to see signs of life. And at a certain point, maybe that does get out of control. You know, you can, you can definitely go sci-fi with it real quick. I actually think the existential concern for me is more along who we are as humans and what we think of ourselves in some respects, right? And again, we can go into that direction, but I'll pause there. Getting into that more, I feel like the risk is already kind of imminent in the sense of like mediocre AI that we've been playing around with, really. All of the misinformation that has been coming out and the threats to um, humanity just with how it could impact people's opinions. So like the advanced AI systems that people are talking about, that seems too far off. I mean, we are already there with the risks. And so how do you kind of see where we are at this time of moment? Yeah, I mean, that, the misinformation is probably the most immediate risk, right? I mean, if you thought misinformation and disinformation was bad in, you know, 2016, like buckle up, right? Because it's not just that there will be more of it, which I think there will be. And it's not just that it'll be more convincing, which I think it will be. But I think it's going to hit at an emotional level that we are not prepared for, right? The example I often use is VR. Because in VR, for a long time, people have recognized that it can like actually change kind of how you think right? I mean, it's used to treat PTSD, right? Or to treat phobias. It is, there have been studies in Stanford where like in a VR experience, you would chop down a tree and people actually used, I think it was like 20 or 30% less paper afterwards. And you can ex imagine a more extreme example, like you had to virtually slaughter an animal, maybe you become a vegetarian. And it's because VR kind of hits at an emotional level that other media doesn't. And I've never been too concerned about that because, you know, that hasn't hit mainstream, although maybe it will with, with Apple and the melding of VR and AI is, is interesting as well. But so you can imagine, again, a VR experience where you can say with statistical significance, like people who go through this are 20% more likely to vote one way or the other. And that becomes really scary that you can just create that experience. And AI, while not quite as emotional as VR, is still more emotional than most media because it can be personalized, right? The extreme example of this is, and this is not far-fetched, getting a phone call, it's in the voice of your mother, and she's telling you X, Y, or Z, right? Obviously, you could eventually call back your mom and confirm, like, was that really you telling me to vote for Proposition B or, you know, whatever it might be? But that's the level of emotion that they can get to is, like, in the voice and in the language of someone who you know and love, right? I mean, it'll be personalized in that way. And from a media literacy perspective, 
I don't think the average person is prepared to combat that. Yeah. And how do you see really like newsrooms playing a role in that? Because how do we get our information into the hands of people when we are competing with everybody else's AI generated content? Yeah. I mean, there is a very positive outlook where in an environment where everybody starts to recognize just how drenched in information, you know, we've become that there is a resurgence of desire for trusted sources, in which case news organizations can still drop the ball on that, but could reclaim the mantle of like, we are trustworthy. And while we are using generative AI to help us be more efficient, more productive and all these things, we're not using it to emotionally manipulate you. Right. And so, so that's one potential outcome. I mean, who knows all the different directions that this could go, but that's a very hopeful outlook. Yeah. And with newsrooms currently, like the Van Ifra survey that just came out as well last week, talking about that half of the newsrooms surveyed use generative AI. I think we're moving into a space where newsrooms are also using it. But there's also a lot of hesitancy in some of newsrooms that are not using it. And one of the questions is always, will they be left behind? What do you think about people who are using generative AI versus not? How would that really impact the way they would be reaching their audience in the future? I mean, for me right now, I think everybody should be using generative AI, but thinking carefully about what it can be best used for, right? So for example, I'm really concerned of people using generative AI just to create an article out of, you know, scratch essentially, or, you know, because, you know, and again, this is maybe a media literacy moment, but like, it's very different than looking something up and getting a fact, right? I mean, it's statistically predicting a fact, which, you know, can get really fuzzy really quickly. Right. I think there was a, a story that came out last week. You probably saw it about a lawyer who argu- was made a, an argument for a federal case completely made from ChatGPT. And it cited, you know, legal cases. All those legal cases were made up. They probably sounded le- like legit legal cases, like he was citing legit legal precedent, but he was just fabricated. And so you could imagine, you know, just as that lawyer is now in hot water, a journalist would be in hot water for the same thing. That said, Generative AI is amazing at spurring creativity, for example, right? And it can do everything from like, you know, help me come up with five versions of headlines for this to, you know, I think it can be used on the back end of like, hey, here's the transcript of the conversation I just had. Can you give me a summary? But you were part of it. So you'll recognize, you know, maybe what was hallucinated and whether or not it was a good summary. And I do think it will make people more productive and will make newsrooms more productive in the best sense of the word. And so you, you kind of have to play with it. I think you, you very well could be left behind at a certain point, just because you won't be able to compete at a certain point if you're not. But I, I also think you have to be careful and smart about how you use it. The biggest conversation that was happening with people on the subtext uh, group last week was people were concerned about the risk of tech developing so fast with AI and publishers on publishers' content and then publishers kind of being getting the shorter end of the deal over there. You're part of the media tech industry as well. So like, how do you see newsrooms kind of getting onto that bandwagon and still being able to protect their interests, but still being able to adopt AI? Yeah, that's a huge question because, I mean, I think for the last 10 to 20 years, maybe 15, you know, news organizations have felt like they've gotten the short end of the stick whenever they've started to engage with technology platforms, right? I mean, it's, it's been a Faustian bargain at best with like Facebook and other social platforms. And so the concern is, is like, are we just jumping in, you know, uh, what is it out of the fire and into the flames or something like that? I mean, it just, it feels like we know this story. 
One, and again, this is not the case right now, but I can imagine this being a moment is just like you, you can actually opt out of being searched by Google, for example. There's like a, you know, do not search script that you can put on your site. And of course, no publisher uses that because you want it to be found by Google because that's a great way to get traffic. But I can also imagine perhaps, you know, you talked about regulation. And again, this is not the case right now, but I can imagine a scenario where people demand that there is a kind of script that allows your data to not be ingested by large language models, that you will not participate in large language models and the data becomes proprietary. And in that world, again, I think news organizations will think critically about whether or not they want to participate in this uh, or not and what they get out of it, in which case then the platforms will have to really offer something. I think anything they offer will have to really come to the table and, and look it in the eyes directly, look that gift horse multiple times over. But that is the kind of thing that I think I'm looking for in terms of leverage of being able to say like, look, I can include a script. You're not allowed to use any of my data. Why should I remove that script, right? That changes the conversation. Again, that's not something that, that exists to my knowledge right now, but I can imagine that being in that regulatory space, something that comes up. Yeah. And with the whole concern of places like Midjourney and Stability AI and all of those image generation tools using photos and images, how do you see kind of the copyright issue evolving and what role would newsrooms have to be playing in adopting all of these specifically like image generation tools? Yeah, I mean, and image generation is really where when it comes to like copyright and legal stuff, the rubber hits the road. And I'll be honest, it's it is going to be something that would require greater minds than mine, because it's difficult to figure out exactly like what percentage to use a term of influence if uh, an AI image is created and it resembles, you know, something that another artist produced by hand, what percentage of influence was there? At what point does it look too much like it so that they can, you know, claim copyright or complain? I don't think anybody knows the answer to that right now, but I can imagine that that is something that eventually gets worked out through the courts. I mean, just to flip it, again, this is, I mentioned this earlier um, before we started recording, it's almost the flip side of ChatGPT, like mid-journey and image creation and the concerns. Because I think with ChatGPT, nobody's concerned about copyright. They're concerned about like whether or not this is a fact, like whether or not what I'm getting is true. And with the images, we know that it's not true. It's not a true image, but the concern is around copyright. So it's almost as like, if you let go of the idea of it being a fact, right, this image is a creation, we know that, but now it's who owns that creation versus the text that's created from ChatGPT. No one really cares about who owns the, the text or what percentage of it was influenced by certain writers, but it's immediately like, well, is this actually trustworthy? Can I believe this or not? I think that's maybe a result of the mediums themselves, like text versus image. But it's funny that those two are sort of inversely related. With Japan getting into the AI train, jumping into it completely and saying that that they have announced that they will not be enforcing copyright on like the data used for AI training, is that setting an example and precedent for like what the other countries are going to be doing? And how do we look at that, especially as the news industry? How concerned should we be about that? It's certainly like... If you look at this from like a game theory perspective, you know, Japan, by saying, you know, we're not going to pursue copyright issues here, it means either you like other countries will join them or lose out to business, right? Because people will just start putting their operations in Japan and being like, well, I, you know, there's no copyright issues in Japan, so I'm going to keep doing it. So again, from a game theory perspective, it, it kind of forces the hand of other countries, right, to kind of find that lowest common denominator. 
that's again just me guessing here that that's you know kind of a gauntlet gauntlet thrown that you know if countries want that business they're going to have to be friendly in the same way so i i could see other countries following in which case you know it becomes fair game and just like you know every corporation is registered in delaware every <laughs> image ai image company will be based in japan then what's the real risk over there for publishers? Because once again, we're the people who are creating all of bringing all the photojournalists and creating these photos, capturing these live moments. Now, if something is just AI generated and built upon that, what's going to happen to the real authentic content that's being produced over there? Yeah. I mean, again, I think, and this is just my beliefs, right? No one knows anything for sure here. I think things like photojournalism are relatively safe because, again, the the value of photojournalism is not just that it's something to look at, it's that it captured an actual thing that happened. So for AI images to sort of eat that space, it would have to be under the guise of misinformation, disinformation. You can't claim that this is a photograph that of something that actually happened unless it really is a photograph. You're either tricking me or it really happened. And if you're tricking me, then kudos to you if you get away with it, I guess. But like you're, again, if you value trust, that's going to disappear pretty quickly. So again, I think photojournalism is protected in that sense. And then on the other side, image creation of like abstract ideas, right? Like an image that might go with an op-ed piece or, you know, a commentary, right? It's a picture of flowers wilting to represent the end of, of spring. That's actually where this issue around images are going to be created. But that's less for photojournalists and more for what I'd call like art artists, um, which could include photographers, but less photojournalism, if that distinction makes sense. And I was looking at this uh, report that had come out by an outplacement for. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Term that's called Challenger Gray and Christmas that said that AI contributed to nearly 5% of all the jobs lost in the United States out of a total of 80,000 layoff announcements in the U.S. just last month. And that really got me thinking in terms of a lot of people and a lot of art outlets are covering stories of how copywriters are being replaced and AI is coming over, coming to take over all of those white collar jobs, really, that we would think that were automation proof. How do you see... AI really impacting the job market and the news industry. When you said photojournalists seem to be kind of safe from AI, what other jobs in the news industry are really at risk over there? So, I mean, again, this is one of those things where I could try and argue both sides. And I want to give like maybe the positive side because I think the negative side is really obvious, right? Not, not really obvious, but like there are a lot of potential jobs, like you said, like copywriter, you know, 
there are a lot of types of stories that maybe can be automated more, right? I mean, and that's not new, right? I mean, I think the AP has been using machines to produce, I think, like earnings reports and maybe some sports game stories for a while now. But you can imagine this now expanding out. On the positive side, here is a scenario that I hope plays out to some degree. And I use the analogy of the ATM. When the ATM first came out, a lot of bank tellers uh, were concerned that they were going to lose their jobs and they were going to be replaced. And that did happen to some extent. But what also happened is that the cost of opening up new banks went down. And so more new bank branches opened up. And even though they required less bank tellers per branch, overall, the number of bank teller jobs went up, right? And right now, I think, you know, what we would imagine a skeleton crew of maybe two or three could actually cover an area that's currently a news desert. And they might be able to do it in a financially sustainable way because they could do more with the power of AI. Now, at certain newsrooms where there's, you know, New York Times or Washington Post or CNN, where there's like a concentration of employees, perhaps it goes down there because they need less people. But my hopeful scenario is that those jobs will actually, there'll be more of them and they will pop up in places that currently are uncovered. I mean, we've talked about news deserts a long time in journalism. And the reason why those news deserts exist is because the market is not big enough to support a real news operation. But what if a real news operation actually becomes easier or requires less people then you can cover those. I mean, again, this is maybe too rosy of a picture that I'm painting, but but that would be a scenario that I can imagine happening and would be great for journalism. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a rosy scenario, but possibly real as well, because the AI market is now apparently $1.3 trillion. And so that also means it's a huge employment generator that's coming about. And so maybe are we going to be seeing roles really evolve within the news industry and new job opportunities come up that way? Yeah, for sure. I mean, just as like in the 2010s, social media editor became a wholly new job title that didn't exist before, I think there will be wholly new job titles. I've been saying, you know, AI prompt engineer, maybe it'll be something else, but I think that will be a role in a lot of newsrooms. Um, And that will be the person who, just like the social media editor, mediated the space between the news organization and social media, that person will be the person who helps mediate the space in between the production of content and the AI that helps them. And again, in a very sci-fi future, I've seen, you know, videos talk about AI and how there'll be like a one-person company IPO in the year 2030 or something like that. And, you know, again, it sounds very silly to us now, but maybe that's the case, right? But I can also imagine, you know, a one- or two-person organization winning a Pulitzer Prize in the year 2030 for their coverage of Hayward, California, or, you know, somewhere that currently is maybe overlooked. Yeah. Like talking about social media, I've been likening this entire AI revolution that's happening to like the social media revolution and seeing how we change the way we delivered content and wrote for audience. How do you see us kind of engaging with audience now with generative AI coming into the mix? What's the future looking like over there? That's a really good question. And, and actually, that's one where I'm, I get maybe more excited because, you know, within journalism, there's lots of different, you know, kind of niches and, and the trust in journalism. But like I've worked a lot of my career in what I might call like audience engagement of journalism, making journalism more transparent, more participatory. And, you know, that is a lot of work. And it's possible that, you know, now we can listen to the audience in a way that we couldn't before, right? I mean, 
a lot of audience engagement is about listening to the audience, understanding them. Again, there are entire companies built around this. Uh, subtext itself is you know, partly the ability to engage the audience and listen to them. And if you can start to do that at a scale with AI that you know, wasn't possible before, I don't know exactly what we'll learn, but I do think that there will be products and discoveries in that space for sure. And how are you looking at all of the chatbots that are coming about? I mean, uh, Skift, which was the B2B travel publisher, just came out with an AI-generated chatbot that looks at all of their archives and you can ask it questions. And is that sort of like a future in which we'll be engaging with our news content? Yes, I, I absolutely love that. And I can imagine more. I mean, before ChatGPT was even released, actually, when I was just playing with MidJourney, you know, I wrote and theorized like, yeah, there'll be just like you could write out and get an, an image, you'd be able to write out and get an article. And I said, you know, you'll be able to say, hey, rewrite this in the style of the AP or rewrite this in the style of Hunter S. Thompson or in the case of Skift, and it makes a lot of sense, rewrite this in the voice of my brand, right? Like once you've got enough, you can almost embody the voice in a model. And again, that's, that is actually where when it comes to generative AI around language, where maybe there is now copyright issues right? Because Skift is allowed to say, hey, we have a chatbot now that has all the Skift information and can write in the voice of Skift. Or let's take the New Yorker, right? A real, a real voicey voice, right? Am I allowed to create an article in the voice of a New Yorker or a specific New Yorker writer? They probably wouldn't like that. But, you know, they could do that themselves and own it, right? And then be able to say like, hey, you can talk with a, a New Yorker writer, uh, maybe not a specific one, but like, you know, in the voice of the New Yorker. I think you can start to personify brands essentially, in a way that only singing characters on commercials could do before, right? I mean, that's what those, you know, the especially like in the 50s and 60s, you know, the Jolly Green Giant, all those ads were just personifying brands and giving them character. Now you could actually have a living, not a living, but like a, a seemingly living interactive character based off of a brand. Again, from a misinformation perspective, it gets really scary. But from a brand perspective, it's actually really empowering. What opportunities do news publishers have right now with audience engagement in the context of generative AI? All these products are still in development, but what's something that they could try and test out right now? Yeah, I mean, again, it is still early. Um, like, I don't think we've seen anybody truly, like, unleash what would become a standard. So there's actually a few buckets that I think people are playing in. One would be what I just mentioned, the idea of listening and maybe, like, think of it as like a revitalization of comments, right? Like commenting on news articles kind of has been on the downslide for a lot of reasons. And maybe this can bring that up. Another one would be in the sort of audience engagement by, by changing or um, giving a TLDR version or whatever of content already produced. Like, hey, I produced this article. Give me all the ways that I could share it on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, et cetera. And also give me a kind of like short version summary of it that I could put at the top of the article to see if people are interested, right? So uh, I'll call that mixing. Another one that deserves exploration would be tools on the production side, right? How can reporters or videographers or whomever use tools to do what they're doing already, but do it better and faster and more thorough, right? So those are like the three buckets that at least come to top of mind. There's probably a few other buckets that people are playing with. And again, we'll kind of see, I will say this, you mentioned you've been thinking about how this compares to social media, the social media revolution that happened uh, maybe a decade ago. There were a lot of second order consequences to that, which we did not predict. And again, to the first question that you asked, there are a potential lot of second order consequences that we just cannot predict. 
And that, that is scary, but I don't think you can, you know, the genie's not going back in the bottle, so to speak. So you just have to kind of go forward with it in a cautious sense. But I think most news organizations are also thinking about what's the other shoe to drop. Can you talk more about that in terms of like what the second order consequences are with social media and what are you thinking about it with AI? Sure. I mean, like when social media first began or, you know, like there was a kind of utopian idea of it, right? And and I would say it kind of hit its peak utopian vibe around um, Arab Spring, right? Like everybody's like, oh my gosh, right? Like everybody has a voice now, you know, totalitarian governments can't stop us. And, you know, isn't it amazing that we can all chat with each other? And, you know, I've got personality and or personalities that I'm engaging with. And, and you know, the early days of Twitter were amazing, right? Like when Twitter first started, I'll use Twitter as, again, as the sort of stand in here for social media, it felt like serendipity had finally been harnessed in a really positive way. And of course, the eventually, maybe, I, I forget when Arab Spring was, maybe 2011, 2012, something like that. 2011. Yeah, 2011. You know, only a few years later, 2016 or 2017, I might put as the, like, the second order consequences, people started being like, wait, there are a ton of people on here that are not real or genuine. I myself find that I am engaging with this in a kind of performative way. I'm not being authentic myself. I can't trust everything that's on here. It seems like things kind of went off the rails, right? And so, so yeah, I mean, again, there's second order consequences. I think there's almost a rule to the internet that there's going to be second order consequences. The internet itself was thought of as pure utopian and now it's, you know, this oligarchy, right? There's like a handful of companies that control a significant way in which we engage with the internet. And so I think it is safe to say that there will be second order consequences to AI. I wouldn't know what they are going to be. That's the nature of, of them, right? It's sort of like you can't necessarily see what they're going to be until the first consequence has landed. And I don't think we're there yet. Like, I don't think we have the first consequence landed. But you certainly like when Google launched you could not have predicted Facebook. You just couldn't have. I mean, maybe you could have, but you, know, you wouldn't have known how it actually would have played out. And I think we're in that spot now where it's like, we're just seeing the Google, like the, the first foot landing, but social, which came out of the era of search and blogging. I mean, I don't even know, especially again, we talked about since Apple did just launch their, their VR thing. I was actually just at a, um, the Augmented World Expo. And the big thing on everybody's lips was, you know, the metaverse has maybe fallen flat VR, you know, like it's never hit a kind of genuine moment. But instead of, a and the way I look at it is, it's not that AI is going to be in VR and the metaverse. I think the metaverse and VR will be subsumed by AI. I think it's going to be an AI world. But when you combine that with a metaverse, again, a more emotional experience, you know, you're going to have a, again, not only will Skift have a chatbot, but it'll have a logo and it'll look cute and it'll giggle at me and, you know, can tell me about the next trip I should take, right? Like it becomes a, a very, you know, ready player one, what would formerly have been pure sci-fi type world. Yeah, this has been a lot of like future, looking into the future episode today. And it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out in like six months down the line and hear back on this episode and how everything what the predictions would be and like where we are and like if this doomsday saying is still a big thing. But just like to wrap things up, I wanted to really hear about where do you see the future of the whole news industry really heading towards? That's a really good question. 
And I mean, again, obviously all predictions should be taken with a grain of salt, right? Because there's just too many moving factors here. One other thing that I've always talked about with the news industry is a kind of pendulum swing between like as many eyeballs as possible and, you know, advertising. And we'll call this like the BuzzFeed era, which again, has clearly waned. But like, again, probably would have been from like 2010 to 2017. That would have been the height of it, like Vice, BuzzFeed, Vox, anything that was about getting as many eyeballs as possible on social. On the other end of the spectrum is I use the information, right? They're less about as many eyeballs as possible. And it's about paying customers, right? So think subscribers, you know, again, the information, I think it's $400 a year. I could be wrong, but you know, it serves a specific kind of interested business person. And if you get 10,000 people doing that, or actually I'm bad at math, you know, even 5,000 people doing that is, is a very healthy business. And so I think the industry kind of shifts between that and we've been shifting towards the subscriber, right? Influence. And so I put that kind of cycle in motion at the same time as a technology cycle. And the technology cycle is usually uh, technology leads and we're catching up. And the direction that technology is leading in is potentially one where, again, I actually think there will be a requirement for direct relationship and trust. Again, maybe I'm being overly ambitious about the human species, but I think people will want to find the kind of kernel of things that they can trust and believe in. And so those actually go together and, and, and can be very favorable. So I actually do see in the immediate future, like actually a really potential positive swing here. But again, all of these things I always see as shifting kind of back and forth between two extremes here. And then of course the, the backswing of technology is, is that second order consequence, which it's hard to always to kind of envision, but it's sort of like the technology ends up actually owning too much and we end up chasing it and in the weak position chasing it. And so they end up accruing more of the benefits than we do. Well, this has been really fascinating conversation to just dive into all of the buzz that has been happening in the industry right now and seeing where everything is going to be heading towards. And as I said, it's going to be really interesting to look back on all of these like conversations and comments that you made today in like a, a year from now and just see where we'd be, right? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, again, you have actually been doing a great job. You're at the forefront of this, in my opinion, like uh, like all the episodes that you're doing, I think will be really interesting to look at in years from now because, yeah, I mean, again, there's a lot of unknown unknowns and you are having great conversations. And I don't think anybody is claiming or can claim that they like can tell exactly what's about to happen. But again, that's what makes it such an exciting time. Oh, thank you. I didn't pay you to say that, though. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I genuinely, I mean, like you, you've gone out and you've been like, look, this is going to be a big deal. Someone should start having conversations about this. So kudos to you for, for doing that. Oh, well, well, thank you. That's really kind, David. And thank you so much for joining me on the News and Robots. And I'm really excited to kind of see where also subtext evolves with AI and the future of what you're going to be building. So thank you so much for joining me on News and Robots and really lovely having you here. Thank you. That was David Cohn, the co-founder of Subtext. If you like what you hear on the podcast, subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. This episode is made possible thanks to the Harvard Innovation Lab's Spark Grant. I'm Nikita Roy, and this is Newsroom Robots.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.